Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Hope for Chronic Pain podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Katinka Vandermeer. Dr. Katinka grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, as the daughter of a successful chiropractic doctor. She followed in her father's footsteps and graduated from Parker College of Chiropractic in 1999. She has since gained a reputation for developing a novel, non-invasive treatment system for neurologic rehabilitation of chronic pain, resulting in breakthroughs for even the most hopeless and severe cases. Her and her team have gained international attention due to their unprecedented success rates in these cases. Kent State University is slated to be involved with the first study of her work starting this year. She is an international speaker and best-selling author of three books, Putting Out the Fire, Taming the Beast, and Wake Up, Miracles of Healing from Around the World. Dr. Katinka practices in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and is the CEO of the Spiro Clinic. Education is the key to unlocking the golden door of freedom. Thank you for joining today. I am so honored to speak to Dr. Angela Stanton today. She has done a lot of education and a lot of research, and I believe she's going to unlock the door to freedom for a lot of people suffering from chronic pain. Thank you for joining today, Dr. Angela. Thank you for inviting me. Really nice meeting you, Dr. Katinka. You as well. I want to tell you guys a little bit about her and how I met her. So Dr. Angela Stanton is a scientist who is also a migraineur. Her research is focused on migraine cause, prevention and treatment without the use of medicines. As a migraineur, her original discovery was helped by experimenting on herself. Dr. Stanton is the author of Fighting the Migraine Epidemic, complete guide, how to treat and prevent migraines without medicines. And her protocol has helped thousands who suffer from migraines return to a full and active life. Over the many years of her research, her knowledge increased exponentially and moved into other medical fields as well, such as genetics, biochemistry, pharmacology, endocrinology, and as of late, nutrition and its influence on our health. Complete health for all and not just migraineurs. That part's very important, guys. So to my audience, today is going to get a little technical, but don't let that cause you to tune out. This is good stuff, guys. This is practical stuff that I believe is really going to help you. So stay with me. While migraines uh, are genetic, the direct cause of migraine is at the ionic level associated with the disruption of electrolyte homeostasis or balance. This is the result of genetic variances of just about all voltage-dependent ionic channels, sodium, potassium, calcium, and ATPase. Remember chemistry? Collectively referred to as channelopathy. Such variances cause major shifts in how much sodium a migraine brain uses. Nutrition, such as carbohydrates, greatly affect migraines. Migraineurs have a stronger than normal reactions to glucose or sugar, which removes sodium and water from the cells, thereby disrupting electrolyte homeostasis. Migraineurs also need to consume more salt because their brains is hyperactive as a result of multiple neuronal connections of their sensory neurons. So, Dr. Stanton, I found you because... 
I suffered uh, in my later years. I'm 48 now, never used to have any issues. And then about three years ago, every single month, like clockwork, when I have my cycle and when I ovulate, I would get these terrible migraines. And I have all the tools and the best of the best in staff treating chronic pain. And yet I could not make a dent on my migraines. And I kept thinking it was hormones. So I did the Dutch test. I delved deep. I spoke to the people high up at Dutch labs and I could not figure it out. And in addition, my beloved assistant Kaylee had even worse migraines than I did. And her grandma and mom suffered from this. So her mother found your book and we just dove headfirst into it. And to my shock and surprise, the first month I tried it, I did not get my ovulation headache or cycle headache. So I am very impressed with you, just so you know. Thank you. (laughs) You are very welcome. However, it's not just my own struggles of hormonal migraines that got me interested. It's the current research of the role that channelopathy plays that really got me excited. Um, I mean, there is a huge link between chronic pain and conditions like POTS, EDS, I believe CRPS and other nerve pain linked to channelopathy. So the implications are huge and you're onto something big. Do you agree? Oh, I completely agree. And we could probably list a lot more health conditions as well. It's not limited to um, what we have listed because many of the autoimmune diseases initiate a channelopathy condition. So I would say that most modern diseases, as well as, of course, many genetic diseases, have a connection to channelopathy. Yes, I would agree, because I think a modern diet is literally the opposite of the diet you should be consuming in order to uh, help this issue of channelopathy. Yeah, it's a pandemic. It's totally a pandemic. So you know migraines like the back of your hand. And may I just inject, if you guys hear migraines and you're thinking, I don't have migraines, I have different pain, just insert, insert channelopathy. What do you believe are the root causes of this pain, Dr. Stanton? Well, so let me give you a little bit of a historical background in terms of humanity. We have a lot of ancestral understanding. And if you look back in the in ancestral terms of what it means to be human and how we evolved. We know we come from, not from homes and cars and streets and lights and uh, transportation, but we come basically from uh, the forests, the prairie lands of, of the world. And if you go back to those lands today and you see animals, wild animals, any kind of animals, particularly mammals, but all animals, you're gonna see that they all have hypersensory organs. They have to, because if they don't hear that predator coming two, three miles away from them, they may not survive to the next day. And so the default, I would say, even for the human, is the hypersensory brain. And so when we're talking about channelopathy, I have to say that this is a modern definition of the ancient brain. Because if you look at a more modern brain, brain of those who have adapted, because we have plenty of people who don't get sick from eating carbohydrates or eating junk food. 
They have people who live to be over 100 smoking uh, two packs of cigarettes a day and drinking a bottle of alcohol a day. So there are some different genetics for different people. And so what I am looking at is basically what we today call tenopathy is probably the default for all mammals and other creatures who have to fear for predatorial uh, situations and who have an evolved brain. And so if we're looking at what channelopathy is today, it basically means that the brain works differently. The ionic channels, which we should explain what that is, work differently, which would mean that, uh, for example, I think everybody with very little knowledge knows that the brain works with electricity. So the brain generates its own current a voltage which then passes from one nerve cell to another. The strengths of this voltage, the, the frequency with which it occurs, is different between people. And those with channelopathy have a marked difference from other people. So when we're looking at channelopathy, it isn't just that the channels work differently, but it affects the entire person, every part of the brain and every part of the body of those organs that specifically that are associated with the hyper excitability of the sensory organs. And if you're looking at the sensory organs, that would be, of course, the hearing, uh, the sight, the taste, um, speak, the ability to taste, touch. So we have the five senses. So these are all more sensitized. And channelopathy here means, and back to the ions that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this is a little bit of chemistry, so I, I hope that your listeners don't mind. But when we talk about um, ionic anything, you're talking about molecules that have been taken apart in such a way that, for example, if we have water, and most everybody knows that water is a combination of oxygen and hydrogen. And so if you want to separate these two, the oxygen and the hydrogen, it will no longer be water. But then we're talking about oxygen ions and hydrogen ions. So that's what ions mean. Those are separated from their molecular structures and they have an electric charge, which is very important. So when we're talking about an ionic channel, it means that it works with a particular electric charge, be it positive or negative, and each ionic channel is very specific to a particular substance, be it sodium, potassium, magnesium, anything that wants to enter the cell will have to have a certain, I would say, right to enter that cell. And that right is like you have to have that particular mineral or nutrient has to have the ability to go through a channel into the cell. And this channel, think of it as a giant gate with a keyhole on it. And in the keyhole, that is the receptor of the cell. That's the ionic channel itself. And the element that wants to go through has to fit that, like a key must fit into the keyhole. And if it fits perfectly, it's the right size. It is the right electrical charge. It is the right amount of electrical charge. It is the right kind of mineral. Then it can go through. And if it is different, it can't. And the channel, the ionic channel itself doesn't control how often something attempts to go in. 
but it can control how often it allows that thing to come in. It's like having a doorman. Only one at the time can come in with a certain frequency. So every, every mineral has to be checked at the ionic gate, whether it's the right mineral or not. And then if it is the right one, it can go in when the cell inside says, okay, I'm ready. So this is basically the ionic channels. And so if you're looking at a migraineur, the ionic channels are different from the general population today. But if you're looking at what it means to be different in terms of genetic sense, well, how was the general established? How many people have they included in evaluating what the normal or average human genome is supposed to be? How many migraine brain persons were included in that genetic evaluation? Not too many. So the general doesn't reflect necessary, necessarily the original or the optimal. It just says, this is the general. I'm going to call this the norm. And anybody who's different, they're going to give those conditions names. And so hence, channelopathy doesn't necessarily mean it is a disease. It just represents that it's a different brain. I think that is the best complicated chemistry explanation I've ever heard. So great job. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm understanding basically you want to get into a club and there's a bouncer. and They're either going to let you in or not. So Dr. Stanton, why do you think the medical community is so far behind on treating and understanding uh, channelopathy? Okay, well, this is a loaded question, so let me answer uh, slightly politically correctly as much as I can. Uh, part of the problem is really that if you look at the scientific community, they know that it is a channelopathy. Because if you look at the medications that are given for migraine, they are blocking ionic channels. Some of the medications that are given uh, will be the same that they provide for epileptic seizures. Some will be for depression. The same medications are given for migraine. And so the scientific community knows it has a lot to do with channels, the ionic channels. But instead of trying to find out what the cause is, it is much easier to simply reduce the symptoms. And so in many cases, at least at the beginning, the medications that are given for channelopathy for migraine in particular seem to work because what they do is they rather than allow um, a, a creation of a new key for the ion to move into the channel or to create a different kind of a door so that the voltage gated channel itself is different so that the mineral could go in Rather than doing that, they simply close the channel and they don't allow any ions in. So anti-seizure medications that are often offered for migraine, like topirometa or many others, there are like a whole class of medications. They literally block the, the voltage-gated sodium and calcium channels. And so what they do is they prevent these minerals from entering, period. That's it. So if they don't enter then the stimulation of the neuron is reduced. It is not going to be able to fire the neurotransmitters that it's supposed to be sending. So its activity is reduced. And therefore, the belief is that if they remove the activity, then there will be no pain, which at the beginning may work, but the brain is an adaptable system. 
I mean, that is why we are alive today, because over time, we were able to adapt to all kinds of situations. So if an ionic channel doesn't open, no problem. The neuron is just going to create a new ionic channel. And so in time, this is why medications stop working. People will have to increase the dose of the medications because the neurons, which are the brain cells, will create new receptors. They will create new voltage-gated doors to come to allow the minerals in. And because in order for them to be able to work and do their job, which is to release, to manufacture and release neurotransmitters, which are the information packets that go between neurons, they have no choice, but they have to be active. They have to release this because if they don't, the outcome of that is pretty dire because a neuron that is not communicating is trimmed. It's literally destroyed. It will be removed from all of its connections. It won't be able to communicate with anything. And therefore, the brain starting is degenerative process. And so um, when we're looking at what the pharmaceutical industry does, they are trying to reduce symptoms. So a whole class of medications or several classes of medications block off these ionic channels. Another class of medication that they now have is the CGRP inhibitors, in which case they're blocking off a different kind of uh, receptor, which senses pain. But still, what you might not feel the pain, but the migraine is still ongoing, only you don't know that you have a migraine, which you do because there are other symptoms in addition to pain. There will be still nausea, dizziness, vertigo. Um, there are a host of other symptoms, maybe aura, maybe the person can't see suddenly, can't hear, can't speak, um, maybe doesn't rem remember where, where the person is, maybe the person collapses from a hemiplegic migraine, but yes, they may not have a head pain. And so this is what pharmaceuticals do. They understand that the problem is at the ionic level, level and they understand that it is channelopathy. Now, the medical professionals like yourself are not taught in medical school to that degree because if you look at medicine, medicine is the art of medicine. It isn't the science of medicine. And so they really can't blame the medical professionals who have never been explained how um, migraine actually works because they are just given a list of medications that can be provided for it. Their job is not to do research, though some doctors do, but that's not their primary focus. Their focus is to identify a health condition and cure it if possible, uh, like uh, bacterial infection, viral infection, a broken arm, these kind of things are curable or surgery, surgery surgical procedures, or try to reduce the symptoms, just as for type 2 diabetes and other health conditions, and migraine is one of these, where they just only reduce the symptoms based on the kind of medication that is provided to them by the pharmaceutical companies. You know, you speak my language, Dr. Staten. Um, I'm not saying my thoughts or my philosophy is yours, but I have always said medicine is wonderful for trauma care. If you break an arm, if you're having a heart attack, if you need a heart but it is not the right answer for chronic pain. You cannot just throw um, pharmaceuticals and not think that there's going to be a price to pay for that approach. The answer you just gave me leads me to my next question, which is based on your research, you believe 
that migraine is more than chronic pain. Is that correct? Correct. So pain is one symptom. It's a very bad symptom, I must add, and a very large percent of migraine sufferers get the pain. But there are migraines that don't come with pain at all. Um, from statistics of literature, apparently approximately about 20% of migraineurs uh, have no pain with their migraine. They just have aura. Um, they, um, in, in the scientific field, they consider an aura migraine as a result of this, that it often comes without pain, distinct and separate from other migraine forms. It's always put into a different category, and there are different kinds of researches are done as a result of that. But aura is basically just a prodrome, and if given what's behind this prodrome, which is also very technical, but we can discuss that, if whatever was behind this prodrome became successful and was able to uh, basically send sodium across the brain, then the migraine may not manifest in pain. And so the prodrome itself, which for uh, an aura migrainer is often nothing but an aura, it itself is representing a migraine according to science, not according to me, but according to how it is defined. And so about based on this then, 20% of migraines don't come with a headache. That is interesting. And now that you say that, I've actually had uh, patients report that. Dr. Stanton, who is susceptible to migraines? Are there traits shared by migraineurs and, and people with channelopathy? Yes, there are. And so back to the original story that I explained some time ago about the ancestral brain. Um, basically, at the time when the human brain evolved into what it is today, all through the two million years of evolution, uh, and particularly the last 300,000 years, during which we can also find that um, ancient humans created cave paintings, etc. Um, we could see that humans primarily only consumed animal products. They haven't eaten carbohydrates. They may have eaten carbohydrates when it was uh, available, when it bumped into a berry bush, for example. But through the last 300,000 years of evolution, there was an ice age. And so depending upon where the human populations resided, they may not have had access to plants at all whatsoever. And so the human brain originally isn't adapted to consuming carbohydrates. And the connection of carbohydrates to the ionic channels and channelopathy is that when glucose enters the cells, so let me back up here for a second just to explain something, not to be overly technical, but something is important here to understand of how glucose enters the cells. Because glucose is too big. It cannot just enter a cell. And it also doesn't have the kind of charge that would allow it to go through an ionic channel. So if I put a cell and I put a glucose molecule next to it, nothing is going to happen. It can't go in. It cannot do anything. So a glucose molecule has to be carried into the cell. So the cell has glucose. And there are two ways by which glucose can be carried into the cells. Uh, for about 85% of our organs and body cells, etc., glucose is delivered by sodium channels. And this is an assisted transport mechanism in which glucose can get into the voltage-gated channels when sodium, which is an ion, 
opens the sodium voltage-gated channels. Then glucose can go through that. It's a specialized channel for, for this transport. Or the other way, which is about 15% of the body, those have GLUT4, which is an insulin transporter. And, but very few organs have insulin transporters. These would be the skeletal muscles, um, the lipids, uh, lipids in our body, um, and uh, maybe heart, some, some other organs. But generally speaking, most of our organs don't have insulin uh, carrying glucose into the cells. So for example, in the brain, while we do have insulin receptors in the brain, they're not good for, so they don't carry glucose into the cells in the brain. And so if you're looking to see how the glucose goes into our body, particularly into the brain, it uses a sodium transport to get inside the cells. But the only way it can get in, glucose can only get into the cells if sodium is coming out. And so as a result, and also if sodium is coming out of the cells, then so is water. So when glucose enters a cell, it re removes basically sodium and water. And this activity that it removes sodium and water is the problem because in a normal brain, that is not a channelopathic brain, just a normal average human brain. It's no problem if a little bit of sodium is removed from the locality of the neuron as a result of glucose going in because that ionic channel just resets really quickly and the sodium refills and it's no problem. But in the migraine brain, there is a problem. So here there's a difference. And the difference comes from the very fact that in the migraine brain, there are a lot more sensory neuronal connections between the neurons. So whereas a person who doesn't have migraine brain, uh, I'm just gonna say now a number here, which has no connection to reality, but just for an example, if this person um, has, for example, smells a flower, and there are going to be 10 sensory neurons associated with the smelling of the flower, uh, coming into the brain to send the message, I'm smelling a flower, then in a migraine brain, there's going to be a number of times more. I'm just going to say a number again, say 100. The difference is going to be quite a bit different because we have a hypersensory brain. So the hypersensory brain doesn't just mean that we are more active, but it has an anatomical difference behind it in order for us to be able to be more active in terms of our sensory organs. And so rather than having just 10 connections between my sensory neurons in my nose to smell this rose, as a microneur, I may have 100. And so I will have a lot more order sensing ability than other people do. But it also means that I'm using a lot more sodium because now instead of having 10 neurons communicating with voltage that I have smelled the flower, I now have 100. And so that requires a lot more voltage, a lot more energy that needs to go through these neurons, a lot more neurons. And so I need a lot more sodium to be around in my brain, around those neurons to communicate. And so if I eat glucose as a migraineur, I cause damage because I remove sodium that would be available from 100 neurons, whereas the person who is not a migraineur is removing sodium from 10 neurons. See what I mean? It's a magnitude different in how the brains communicate and how much sodium I need at certain location. 
So it's exponentially more damaging uh, to people who suffer from channelopathy than, you know, a normal person. Exactly. Well, I also just want to say that you make biochemistry sound so fascinating. I think you can do meditation hours just talking about biochemistry for hours. I wish you were my professor in school. (laughs) So um, a random question I'm just thinking, you know, I treat a lot of complex regional pain syndrome patients where they have the pain in the limbs. So we talk about the brain, but does this affect the nerves in the limbs, for example, as well? It can. Um, I don't uh, know enough about it. Obviously, you're much more familiar with this subject than I am. But any kind of pain that we feel from anywhere, the only reason we feel that is because we sense the sensory um, activity moved up to the brain. So we can sense that we have a pain in the finger. And if the person has more sensory neurons in the brain and has channelopathy, I don't see how it couldn't possibly connect to the rest of the, the organs. So uh, fibromyalgia, for example, pain on the skin or just under the skin with the nerves or any other chronic pain disorders, which you're working with quite a bit, for sure are connected to, in some way, um, either to channelopathy or to other brain conditions that may be similar in some ways, but maybe not channelopathy, but similar in some ways. Maybe it's a um, the inability of carrying certain nutrients, for example. Uh, There could be a whole host of reasons, but it always has to boil down to the nerves associated with the ones receiving the the communication from the brain where the pain actually hurts. And another random question, Dr. Stanton, my brain is just going, have you at all had a chance to look at the effect of the COVID infection on channelopathy? You know, it is very interesting that you asked this because we had many, many migraineurs who came down with COVID. But because the migraineurs that I work with, and it's a limited number currently, about 14,000 people, um, they were all told to move to a specialized diet if they caught COVID. And as a result, they have all came through COVID very quickly without any issues and so far, I have not seen or heard of any kind of a, a exaggerated symptoms like you see uh, always talked about uh, elsewhere. And so, but these migraineurs that I work with are different because they are already using my protocol and they already are modified in what they do and how they do. And I would not be able to tell you what this same thing would be like for migraineurs who are not following my protocol because I'm not in connection with them. I have seen on Facebook, and again, this is a limited observation without me getting involved, just looking at people who I know have in the past complained about migraine. They're not connected to me as a migraine group, but maybe there's a connection on Facebook. And I have seen them suffer a lot more. But given that I'm not familiar enough to ask even what they feel and how they feel, I don't think that I can answer this question. But from the perspective of just pure science, looking at just what COVID is and how it works, um, it is highly possible because we understand that COVID, or I should say uh, the actual virus, SARS-CoV-2 itself, is a, um, a blood clotting 
it's a vascular damaging organism and causing microclots. It's a microthrombi that goes down into the vascular level that oh, are so thin that it's just single file red blood cells, thin vascular uh, walls that are damaged and are clotting. And so I am sure that the many people who have had tremendous headaches all through their COVID, and that includes me too, but I didn't have it for very long. But people who have the headache through COVID that is really bad and doesn't respond to any painkillers is likely caused by these little microthrombi in the brain in the form of tiny blood clots. And that would affect everywhere, every neuron in the brain. But I don't know if this would be specific to the ionic channels. Thank you for answering that. So first off, guys, if you're listening to this, you need to go get her book. It is an amazing book. Um, it is not a simple system. It is a life-changing system. But you cannot just listen to this podcast and think you have the whole protocol. But that being said, Dr. Stanton, can you describe your protocol for treating uh, migraines and channelopathy? Sure. So there are the two different kinds of ways to look at it. One is through the eyes of a person like you, for example, who had hormonal uh, migraines. And then there are the other kinds, which, in which case there may be migraine without the hormone influence. And so for these two, there are a little bit of a difference condition or treatment conditions. So for the one who has hormonal conditions, within the hormonal conditions, there could be two options. And I highly recommend that people who listen to uh, this podcast and have hormonal migraines, be it once or twice a month, it could also be at ovulation, that they start measuring their weight every single day, the same time, like in the morning, before eating, before drinking, naked, um, maybe before or after shower, doesn't matter, but totally the same way every single morning and write a diary. It's not important how much a person weighs. What is important is what the difference is between days. And so if a person, for example, yesterday weighed 130 pounds and today for absolutely no reason, at the same time, the same way that person weighs two pounds less or two pounds more, clearly that was a hormonal influence. And so in that case, if the person weighs two pounds more, that was retained water. If the person lost two pounds, that was lost water. Again, hormonal influence. So these two affect the brain primarily because of water, but also as a result of the available electrolytes. Because when you weigh less or more, your electrolyte itself, the amount changes, and also the electrolyte quality of how much sodium, how much potassium it contains, changes. And so people who gain weight, for example, uh, two pounds or more, all of a sudden, just from one day to the next, need to reduce the salt in their, not diet, but in their water. And I'll separate the diet and water in a moment to explain why. But in their water, they need to reduce the salt and they need to increase in their diet more potassium-rich foods. A person who lose two pounds or more from one day to the next, they have to do the opposite. They have to increase salt and water. So salt in water, and they need to increase both. 
and they need to reduce their potassium or just stick with the same amount of potassium. And then the third group of person is the one who is not affected by these kind of changes. That person just needs to increase salt in the water all the time. And so what, why am I saying in the water as opposed to food? If you look at how when we eat versus when we drink, how these things absorb into our body, they're different. And if you look at also your uh, a blood test, a simple blood test, nearly all of them will have an electrolyte panel, which shows the amount of sodium, potassium, chloride, uh, uh, carbon dioxide, uh, onion gap, etc. in the blood. You can see there that there's an ideal level of sodium in the blood, ideal level of potassium in the blood all the time. And there's a very narrow range for these two. And the level of sodium in the blood is about 30, over 30 times more than the level of potassium. But if you're looking inside the cell, it's the opposite. So you have about 30 times more potassium inside the cell than sodium. And this is important, whether the sodium and potassium is in or outside of the cells. So when you drink water, it is going to end up in your blood. And so this water can contain sodium and it should never contain potassium because in the blood, there's very little potassium, but there's a lot of sodium. So when you drink, you should be drinking in such a way that the water contains salt in order to enrich your electrolyte level of sodium in your blood. But when you eat food, the food itself is absorbed through the intestines. And so it heads in a different vascular system after the intestines, it goes through the mesentery which goes into the intestines and absorbs um, the food uh, through the intestines into this mesentery blood system, which delivers the nutrients straight into the cell. So in your food, you don't want so much sodium, salt, because then you're going to end up with too much salt inside your cells where it shouldn't be. It should have more, so more potassium in the cells. So you'd want to have most of the potassium by food only, and most of the sodium by water only. I hope that this makes sense. It does make sense. I am um, thinking like a patient right now, so I'm going to ask you this. Instead of eating all this potassium-rich food, can I just take a potassium supplement? And I would say no, because, uh, and it's quite complicated, but let me try to explain it in a very simple terms. I actually interviewed an emergency doctor who specializes in cardiovascular health, and he was a uh, um, heart surgeon. And I asked him if they ever supplement potassium to a patient who is coming in to the emer emergency room. And his response was is that, yes, they do, together with, and this is where we have to add this together with, which is very important, together with lidocaine to reduce the pain because potassium in the blood is extremely painful it burns the blood vessels, so it shouldn't be in the blood vessels. And in addition to that, they also supplement it or give insulin and glucose. And the reason why they're doing this is because, as I mentioned earlier, the role of the, the voltage-gated channels is basically to only allow in or out those elements that should that have the right to use that particular gate, that voltage gate. And so if you're looking at sodium or potassium in the blood where it shouldn't be and you want to get it into the cell 
it isn't a matter of just opening the cell, take all the potassium, but it requires the cells to open up very specialized voltage-gated channels to allow the potassium into the cell. But we have to know that the cell is not empty, it's full. And so in order for it to take in extra potassium, something has to leave the cell. And because potassium has to use voltage-gated channels to get in, and sodium has to use voltage-gated channels to come out, they need to initiate the voltage-gated movement of the channel. And this can be done by added glucose, because as I noted earlier, glucose will get into the cells using sodium transporters. And what it means is that the sodium is going to activate the voltage gate, come out of the cells in order for glucose to come in. And when this happens, because the gate is open, also potassium can go in. So sodium and potassium replace each other in the cell. So in order for you to get rid of all the potassium in your blood that you took in by supplement, it needs to be able to remove or somehow the potassium has to get out of your blood and into your cells. And it is an extremely complicated process, which isn't natural from the blood vessels. It is natural to happen from the back door, which is through digestive system and the intestines. It is not natural under any conditions to have that much potassium in the blood. Brilliant answer. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I asked that. So your advice and information has been exceptional. Do you have any other advice before we go, Dr. Sinton, for uh, people suffering from chandelopathy, if you could sum it up? Well, to sum it up, is it's very important to, to experiment a little bit. So we're all different. We are all individuals. And what may work for me perfectly in amount or uh, quantity or quality may not work for other people the same way. And so I think that in contrast to modern medicine that prefers to dose everything in the right doses and the right amount and the right frequency, I think that, yes, a little guideline is a good idea. But I think that beyond the guideline, if, for example, I suggest to somebody to have uh, 10 cups of water a day and each of them have one-eighth of a teaspoon of salt to make sure that that person gets enough salt, Maybe that person needs more than one-eighth of a teaspoon of salt, like I need to have a quarter teaspoon of salt for my health benefits. And so I think everybody should be a little bit relaxed about the, the, the processes and experiment a little bit on his or her own self to see what works best. And even if it is counter to most scientific or medical knowledge today, and like if you go back into nutrients, um, and we know, for example, that they recommend to eat a lot of carbohydrates. It is quite counterintuitive because up until about 150, 200 years ago, we didn't have carbohydrates in the same amount available to us. So it requires a person to individualize him or herself and place the person uh, themselves into the situation and, and experiment and understand what works for the individual rather than for the majority. Oh my gosh, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking your very valuable time and sharing with my listeners, Dr. Stanton. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. You guys go out, get her book. 
This is groundbreaking information. Um, I have not ever heard this anywhere else. Please share it with your friends who suffer from uh, chronic pain and migraines. And we're going to link her book and also Facebook page uh, in our uh, podcast link. So you guys would have that. So a quote by Ronald Reagan They say we offer simple answers to complex problems. Well, perhaps there is a simple answer, not an easy answer, but simple. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, everybody, too. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited about every new person we are able to reach. It is our most sincere hope that our podcast will bring hope to many. If you or someone you love is suffering from chronic pain, please don't lose hope. Visit our website at www.thespiroclinic.com for more information and stories of hope. That's www.thespiroclinic.com for more information and stories of hope.